The interchange is brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Long duration energy storage, plus efficiency, plus resiliency. Yes, yes, and yes. With Viking Cold's thermal energy storage systems, they can store and discharge up to one megawatt for up to 13 hours per day per facility, plus improve efficiency at an average of 25%. Storing cold inside critical food supply infrastructure also provides three times longer resiliency during planned or unplanned power outages. See the benefits for the grid for the food industry and the environment at vikingcold.com slash grid. The interchange is also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with its customers to advance the connected power plant of the future with smart trackers, energy storage systems, and the True Capture advanced control software. It optimizes performance, increases energy yields, and reduces costs for developers. NextTracker has more than 30 gigawatts of resilient and intelligent systems installed, delivered, or under fulfillment in hundreds of projects across six continents. Find your tracker at nexttracker.com. That's N-E-X-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, your co-host and a contributing editor at GTM. This week, what one entrepreneur's story tells us about the tech to climate migration that we're seeing right now. Shale Khan, my co-host and the managing director at Energy Impact Partners, a venture capital fund dedicated to the energy transition, sits down with Jason Jacobs. Jason is the host of My Climate Journey, another podcast that has popped up in recent years. And he is on this climate journey uh, that's very public. And he's been uncovering this community of really highly skilled, concerned, very engaged people around climate change, many of whom have come from the tech world. And this week, we're going to speak to him about his own journey, but just as importantly, this migration of tech to climate and where it might take us. So Jason founded this running app called RunKeeper, which was eventually sold to ASICs. And after a brief interlude, he essentially dedicated his life to addressing climate change. But unlike a lot of people, he opened this whole journey up to the world via a newsletter, a podcast, and then a Slack room. And uh, that's what we're going to talk to him about, what, what he writes about and talks about and um, what he's gathered from other people who've made the transition. So you can check out Jason's podcast it's called My Climate Journey. And now here is Shale Khan sitting down with Jason to talk about that journey. Jason, welcome. So happy to have you here. Thanks, Shell. I'm very happy to be here. And it's, it's a bit unnerving as well because I've done a hundred of these episodes as the host over the last nine months or so. But uh, I think this is the very first that I'm actually doing as a guest. Yep. I've had that same experience in the reverse direction. Weird to go from being the question asker to the question answerer. Um, you've been kind enough to have me on your own podcast twice now, actually, wherein I've had to uh, execute that role reversal. So I figured I would turn the tables and 
and do the same to you. We'll get to my climate journey in a minute, but I do want to spend a few minutes talking about what happened to you over this, like, whatever it was, 12-month period from when you sold RunKeeper to ASICs through when you fully decided to commit yourself and figured out what you're doing in this climate world. Because I think, um, and we'll talk about this later, my suspicion is that your experience mimicked the experience that a lot of people are having right now. So let's dig in a little bit on it. So you sell RunKeeper to ASICs. At what point do you decide to leave after the acquisition? Uh, yeah, basically when, when my job was done. So I, I believed very much in the thesis of the acquisition and saw that the uh, team had a much bigger potential role to play than just as an independent subsidiary continuing to build the app. And so I kind of slipped out the back door very amicably uh, and continued on as an advisor for a year after I left to make sure that things went as planned. Um, and yeah, so that so so that's the ASIC story. And, and it's gone on uh, to, to thrive. The team's probably four or five times bigger today than they were um, when I left the the company and they've taken on a, a bunch of other responsibilities, you know, all of e-commerce across all regions and brands. And they played a big role in getting the internal analytics infra infrastructure in place. Um, so uh, I'm really proud of, of the, the, the way the acquisition has performed on, on the other side. Um, that that's really interesting. It, it's actually relatively similar to my experience after um, Green Tech Media got acquired by Wood McKenzie. I ended up spending a good chunk. I stayed around for another year or so after the acquisition and ended up getting um, shipped around the world a fair bit to go uh, teach not just the other folks at Wood McKenzie what we were up to, but you know I had been running GTM Research, which was the market analysis arm. Wood McKenzie had lots of big clients in the broader energy world, like the oil and gas super majors in particular. And so I got sent around to a lot of those folks to you know, sort of talk about the energy transition. That was a really eye-opening experience. I I'm curious, had you been through M&A before, or was this your first experience on the inside of it? Yeah, I, I'd actually never started a company before, so had 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 been through M and A in a functional role that was not in the executive suite and was not CEO. Um, but this was all new to me, uh, and I think it's almost better that that was the case because I wasn't jaded. And in hindsight, I hear all these stories about how most um, mergers and acquisitions fail, uh, but but this acquisition has actually been quite successful. Um, and uh, and and I'm. Really proud of that, and and it it, it honestly it, it it felt a lot easier and, and more natural than many situations. So I'm not really sure why we got so lucky, but we did. Nice. Okay, so you do the succession plan. Everything is you know the train has left the station. That feels like the acquisition is going to be a success. So you leave, um, and then as I remember you telling me the story before, you actually did decide to start another company and even went so far as to raise some capital, some seed funding to start that other company. So what what was the idea that you had then and how far did you get down the road? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I took a, a year off to rest and recuperate and it was a really bumpy ride. And uh, I think I also just had almost some survivor guilt uh, because I I felt like I, I was in a very fortunate position to have the outcome that I did, and there was a lot of luck and privilege that went into that. So I felt a duty to work on something that was important for the world. Uh, so there were two things that I was looking at at the time. One was consumer health, taking what I learned in fitness and applying it to broader health. Um, but that felt really messy, bureaucratic. It almost felt like quicksand trying to 
operate in in that realm and and I was used to kind of the wild west of of consumer and the other area was was climate change and when I looked at climate change I I mean there was no problem that caused me more anxiety or or more concern um, but it just wasn't obvious to me how my skills could help and how transferable they would be and it also just wasn't obvious that this is an area that would give me energy or that I would be particularly effective at no matter how noble the um, the mission. So I, I talked myself into trying to start another consumer company and I had a market that I was interested in and that was live mobile interactive TV. Essentially, if if you take um, live TV and embed it in native mobile applications and they had a baby and you know what types of um, shows could be invented that, that couldn't have existed before that format came into being. And, um, and I, I, yeah, I put three venture capitalists on the cap table. I wasn't looking for the money, but these were just investors that I had known a long time that, uh, that were just essentially interested in, in being a part of whatever I did next. And I said, you know, they said, let us fund you. And I said, there's no way I'm ready. I don't have anything. And they said, um, well, you know, it's an expedition and not a company. If you get six months in, you don't find anything you like. Just give it back, uh, and so uh, I set out on that expedition, and you know, got the band back together, the same founding team as Runkeeper. Got a few months in, and and actually, the areas we were uncovering for potential show concepts were really fertile, and it was going to be fun, and I was going to be good at it, or at least it felt like it was a good fit um, in every way, other than purpose. Uh, it it I just felt like a total mercenary, and meanwhile, it was literally during that time period that. Uh, that the IPCC one and a half degree report came out and that Trump was taking steps to try to withdraw us from Paris and the scientific community was almost foaming at the mouth uh, with concern and, and alarm and, and nobody seemed to be listening. And it just was becoming more and more clear that we're not nearly on the path that we need to be on and, and that this is a long-term problem. So the only people that can really think about it are people that have the luxury to think long-term. And, and here I am with the flexibility to work on whatever I want and long time horizons. And I'm trying to build this vapid consumer television startup. So kind of in one fell swoop back in December of 18, I still had almost all of the initial funding, more than 90%. I just gave the money back and uh, kind of returned to looking at climate change with a vengeance. Right. And so then you go through what has since, so I guess this this then starts uh, in earnest at beginning in 2019 or so. So you're, you know, a little over a year into this journey now where you're basically like full-time learning about climate change, trying to figure out what you could do about it. And one of the things that I have found most interesting as I've uh, gotten to know you during that time and just kind of like watch your journey is the evolution of your own understanding of the problem and the solution set and also identification of where the big levers are that could make a difference. And so I wonder if you could just quickly kind of walk us through like an arc of when you were early on, you're just like starting to learn about climate change. What were the preconceptions that you had at that point? What were the things that jumped out early on? And then like, how has that evolved over time? Yeah, I would say, so it, it continues to evolve, but thus far there've probably been three main phases to the last uh, 12 or, or 15 months that I've been focused on this. Uh, my first phase was just, you know, reaching out to experts and asking kind of, are we doomed? Is it too late? Is there anything we can do? What can we do? How, you know, how, how apocalyptic is it going to get? How freaked out are you? Um, I mean, that was kind of the main line of questioning was just like, like, you know, how, how screwed are we? 
Um, and and then uh, and then the next phase was oh there are actually things we can do, but there are you know a handful of outsized levers, whether it's things like nuclear fission or fusion or long duration storage or you know carbon removal at scale um, that there's these kind of or putting a price on carbon for example in some form it, it's like there there were these certain levers that could be big levers right I had kind of the BEV you know the breakthrough energy ventures half a gigaton threshold mm-hmm. in my head uh, and that you know coming in from Silicon Valley if we want to you know play an outsized role then we need to take one of these big things and and attack it um and uh and and so that was kind of phase two and now i'm i'm probably midway through phase three right and phase three is okay this is a thorny systems problem like i've never seen before uh and in order to turn the big tanker ship that is our global economy uh, and, and that includes kind of going sector by sector by sector by sector and decarbonizing everything because our global economy was built without factoring in the externality of the you know emissions and damage to the planet or certainly damage to keeping the planet inhabitable um, by by thriving life forms like humans. Um, and and now it needs to be rearchitected in a way that that essentially takes that into account. Um, and in order to get there, there are big things, there are small things, there are startup things, there are big company things, there are you know innovation things, there are policy things, there are R and D things, there are uh, you know there are science things, there are grassroots advocacy things, there are philanthropic things. It's like it all matters. Uh, and. And actually, it's like a rainforest, like it all kind of feeds each other. And so I would argue now, or at least my current thinking, is that it's more important to figure out which piece gives you energy and where you specifically can have high impact than it is to work on the thing that in some spreadsheet is the most, you know, the biggest number thing that you can do. <laughs> That's funny. Not to, not to brag, but I remember having that exact conversation with you when you were in deep in phase two, which I think is interesting because I think that your experience of the second phase where you basically came in from a uh, tech and dare I say like Silicon Valley like mindset, you live in Boston. So let's be clear, you're not actually in Silicon Valley. But you know, with that mindset, you come in and you look at the problem. And the first thing that you say is, well, okay, like, got to only focus on the things that are going to have that can reduce the largest number of tons, like full stop. And so that's how you end up with carbon removal and nuclear fusion and things like that. And I've seen that. I don't know if you have had this experience as well, but this community of people who we'll talk more about in a minute who are like coming from the tech world, entering the climate change world, that seems like such a common initial set of answers. And I wonder why you think that is. Like, what is it about that mindset that naturally gravitates initially toward uh, and potentially ultimately toward these like the the massive technology solutions yeah i i think and i mean i'm no expert but it seems like there's kind of two two main things going on if i have to hypothesize because i don't have the answer but 
I think one is just it's kind of how we're conditioned in a Silicon Valley mindset where the nature of venture capital as an asset class is that it is the, you know, the outliers that return the fund, right? And, um, and, and that you're not playing for base hits or doubles. And if you have to choose between a, a portfolio of mostly base hits or doubles versus, you know, one that has mostly losers and like, you know, one or a handful that, that just like go through the moon, right? You choose the latter um, with, with portfolio economics, which I'm still learning about. Um, so so that that's kind of one thing. But then the other is, I don't think people fully appreciate the systems nature of this problem. And maybe they're not used to working in areas that have this type of dynamic where uh, even if you want those outsized things to happen, I now believe that you actually need just as much of all these other things to enable it that you do of that one thing where I think when people are coming in, they just look at the lever as if it can operate in a vacuum. And given how interrelated everything is with this problem, it can't. Coming up, we'll hear more from Jason about what he's heard from other folks in the tech world and in the business world about why they're getting into solving climate change. First, though, a quick word about our sponsors. Long duration thermal energy storage from Viking Cold is truly long duration with the added benefits of efficiency and resiliency. Commercial industrial installations store and discharge up to one megawatt for up to 13 hours per day in a single facility, plus improve efficiency by an average of 25%. Thermal energy storage provides new demand management flexibility to electricity suppliers with a levelized cost of energy less than two cents per kilowatt hour, and that thermal energy storage should come from Viking Cold. They've got an intelligence platform that optimizes energy use in refrigerated warehouses, grocery store freezers, and restaurants around the globe. Learn more about how thermal energy storage is benefiting the grid, the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com grid. And if you want to optimize your solar power, well, you need a tracking system from NextTracker. NextTracker is the global leader in intelligent solar tracker systems, software, and services. During the time it takes to listen to this podcast, NextTracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operation and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems and power plants around the globe. And that data helps customers manage their health and well-being of their assets, optimize their energy yields, and maximize their financial returns. We all want that, don't we? Find out more at nexttracker.com. That's N-E-X tracker.com. All right. So in the process of going through your journey, I think you and the My Climate Journey in general has become one of the like central organizing hubs of this tech to climate migration that we've talked about a few times before in the context of climate tech investing in this new wave of excitement around the space. It's not just coming from investors, it's coming from entrepreneurs and you know employees at large tech companies who want to dedicate themselves more to climate change. What are you finding about this community? Like wh- why now? What is driving them? Are they all going through the same journey that you are and you've just become a hub for them? Well, uh, I don't know that I can s- standardize, but I do think that what learning in public has done is it has opened my eyes to the fact that there are an increasing number of people that are having a similar awakening. I don't think it's specific to tech. However, I spent my whole career in tech, and therefore maybe that's the audience that I 
speak to most authentically. Um, so maybe that's why that there's there's a higher concentration of those that are showing up in my inbox. Uh, but from what I gather, uh, you know, everyone's got their own story. But I think the common element, if you had to summarize, is that you know these are people who tend to be fairly accomplished, who maybe are in positions where they uh, where they have more flexibility and longer time horizons uh, where they are getting to a phase in their lives and in their careers where purpose is becoming more important. And they're also becoming just increasingly more concerned about this problem. And this feels to them almost like an overarching problem that if we don't solve this problem, then no other problem is going to matter. And so I think that's what's leading them here, but they don't really understand the nature of the problem. They don't really understand how to go about thinking through and prioritizing solutions. And they also don't understand how their skills are transferable and what's the most impactful way that they can use those skills. So they essentially come in as learners first uh, with the goal of reorienting themselves fully so that they can spend their next chapter and beyond working hard to try to help address this problem in some way. Do you think that the, like what's changed, I guess, is my main question. Is it that um, this group of people was always out there, really wanted to dedicate themselves to climate change or at least spend more time on mitigating climate change, but didn't have the venues to unlock or didn't have the knowledge base, didn't have the information available? Or did something change? Like you said, in your case, it was like IPCC report and the Trump administration. Like, do you think that there's something that changed? You could add maybe for those in the tech community who are in Northern California, wildfires. But like, is it galvanizing events like that? Or is it just like, we're finally finding a way to bring this community that was always interested into the fold? Yeah. So I think the same way that there's no silver bullets when it comes to solutions, I don't know if there's one silver bullet in terms of answering the question of what changed, because I don't think it was one thing. Uh, I think part of it is that the issue is just becoming more acute and it's becoming clearer to the tech community, but also just to everybody around the world that we're not where we need to be and that we need to address it urgently or things are going to get bad. Uh, So that's kind of one thing. I think another thing is that in the tech community, like, you know, 10 years ago in the tech community, it was an aspirational place to be. It was a place, you know, you, you, you don't go chasing riches, you go chasing impact, right? And I think that people are becoming a lot more jaded with the tech community because it has, uh, you know, the... With the rise of the the Facebooks and the Googles and the Twitters, et cetera, I think we in the internet uh, they, there was the promise of everything good that could come, and I think much of that has come about. But I don't think people anticipated that it was also a double-edged sword, and now we're starting to see more acutely some of the negative and the unintended consequences, um, which are causing people to seek out their their purpose elsewhere. Yeah, I think there's something to this. Um you know, the tech community is really attracted to, you kind of alluded to this before, the tech community is really attracted to like what feels like the world's biggest problems or the world's biggest opportunities. And so for a long time with the internet, that was like connecting the world, right? And then we connected the world. And so then the next phase of problems that had to be solved were a little bit lesser as you went further and further down the chain. And meanwhile, these other like massive problems emerge. How do we, you know, get space travel back for humans, right? 
right? And so it's really exciting to go work for SpaceX or Blue Origin or whatever. But climate change is inherently that. And so if you can figure out a way to frame that problem in a, in a manner that seems approachable and addressable to somebody who's like a software engineer by training or something like that, then it almost like it has a characteristic going for it that is so perfectly suited to the mindset of like the Silicon Valley tech world that it seems almost obvious in hindsight. Yeah, and I think what will be interesting is that if you people are coming in as learners and they are, at least from what I've seen, many of them are looking at the problem holistically. They're not just looking at the opportunities for venture-backed startups in this area. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where they come out when it comes to where they anchor because I absolutely think there's a role for venture capital and a role for VC-backed innovation in the climate fight. But it's it's just one role. It's not a silver bullet. And there's many other things that are needed, both in the innovation world and outside of the innovation world. And so, I mean, like for me, for example, I would have assumed coming in that I was going to come out the other side an entrepreneur. And yet I've ended up in this kind of weirdo perch, uh, looking at things at the systems level and learning in public, right, which actually feels really good and natural and like it's having a high impact on the problem. But it's it's different than what I would have expected I would do coming in. And I wonder if a lot of people coming in on a similar journey are going to come to similar conclusions as it relates to where they anchor. That's interesting. I mean, so it, it would be particularly fascinating to see a tech to climate migration that also results in like a lot of career changes as a result. I don't think we've seen that much yet. I mean, you're an exception, certainly. But for the most part, I think I've at least I've seen people looking to apply the skill sets they've already got to a new problem. Um, as opposed to like, let's, you know, jump into policy world or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and I would argue that even for me, I mean, I'm applying the skills that I've got. I'm, I'm just, it's just kind of manifesting in a different, uh, in a different type of entity, I, 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 I would say. So I, I mean, I, 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 and my advice to people wouldn't be to go learn a whole new sport. It would be to figure out what you're best at and what gives you energy and then find a way to apply that in the most impactful way you can. But one of the, one of the definite, like impactful is not just how many gigatons, right? Impactful is also what's going to be fun and, and exciting and intellectually stimulating to you. And what are you good at? Um, Cause if it's one of those without the other, I don't think it's a recipe for durable success. All right. So let's assume that um, you and I are a little, ahead of the curve here and that what we're identifying and talking about is a wave that's going to continue to build over the next few years. And so there will be a significant migration of talent and interest and investment, and it will it will grow and grow and grow for at least a little while. I guess the next question for me is like, um, first of all, what what worries you about that? Like as an example, you know, I've seen some people sort of deridingly say that like, climate is the next blockchain in the sense that it is not that everything is wrong with blockchain, but that there was definitely a herd mentality that developed around blockchain. Like everybody got into blockchain, too much money probably flowed into the sector, too many, you know, tech community people dedicated themselves to it. It like wasn't ready for it. And, you know, there's been a crash as a result. Um, will we see the same thing happen in climate? And, you know, how do we avoid it? So I guess, well, I wonder whether you have concerns that something like that is going to happen, given all this newfound interest. I kind of feel like it's the natural course of these cycles where uh, if it becomes the bell at the ball, if you will, and starts being a vacuum for money and resources, then 
there probably will be a lot of carnage. But then out the other side, some very important companies will get built and there'll be a lot of learning. Like if you look at Internet 1.0, right? The uh, And not even clean tech, but internet, right? Uh, I mean, with the crash, there was, you know, people that were software engineers were were trying to get jobs at the mall to, to pay their bills and and it got ugly. But out the other side came Amazon and Google and, and, and a lot of, you know, important enduring companies and just the internet itself became the foundation that enabled a lot of the other innovation that, that's happened since. Um, and I think, I think climate tech won't be any different in that regard where it's, it's I think the, the resources that are coming in are exciting and the danger is that you get seduced and carried away and irresponsible and 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 you know and 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 make a bunch of bad bets that aren't rational um but the i i think for someone like me who is here for the long haul and committed to helping address the problem over the long haul. I think you want that to happen, but you also need to stay disciplined and and make sure if something's an experiment, then it's an experiment and you should bet with experimental dollars. And when you're ready to lean into something because it's working, then you lean in, but not to confuse where you are in the curve. So I think I agree with you, but to play minor devil's advocate for a moment, um, I guess the the difference in this context is let's just say that climate tech goes through the traditional hype cycle over the next few years, which means we're kind of at the front end of the hype cycle today. It's going to peak at some point uh, and then it'll crash and then we'll end up in the trough of disillusionment followed by this sort of like long, slow, steady progression. And you could argue that that's kind of exactly what happened in the first clean tech wave. And now we're back in the new next phase of the hype cycle. I guess the the difference here would be there's an argument to be made we can't afford the trough of disillusionment. Basically, if we end up with a bubble that bursts and there is a lot of carnage and it scares everybody away again for another seven years or whatever it might be, that those seven years are seven years lost to solving the problem that we really need to solve and can't take our eyes off of. And if that's true, then we need to do everything that we can not to overinflate the bubble so that it never bursts. But what's the alternative to stay lean and under-resourced and like a ghost town for another decade? I mean, how is that any better? No, I mean, certainly not, right? But like, you know, the question is, do you um, do you do everything that you can to drive more and more? There, I think there's a legitimate argument on both sides of this, by the way. There's one argument that goes, um, we need all hands on deck at all times. Every dollar, every additional dollar that is invested in a climate tech solution is a good dollar because this is the biggest problem humanity faces and we need to throw everything that we can at the problem. That's argument number one. Argument number two is, um, yes, we obviously need more investment in the space. We need more talent. We need more people. However, we should be trying to be careful to moderate it to some degree and to kind of guide the flow of dollars and hours um, toward the things that we think will sustain and speak out to the extent that we have a a platform um, about the things that we think are going to potentially cause a burst. And in so doing, try to moderate the um, volatility that comes with the like traditional hype cycle. I, I mean, it's a weird analogy, but I kind of think of it like inbound marketing. You want to make it an aspirational place to be, but then you want to be really selective where you spend your time and resource. And I would give everyone the same advice, but I don't think we should do anything to not make it an aspirational place to be. No. Yeah. I mean, I, Look, certainly agree with you there. Um, I don't know. We'll see, right? Like w- what we don't know yet 
is where is all of this um, talent and attention and money going to flow? Right. Because we're still on the front end of it, assuming that it it is a wave that continues to build. Like, again, you know, Cleantech 1.0, all that excitement did lead to some enduring important things, but it also led to a lot of value destruction in what turned out to be a couple of big hurdy type bets. And so maybe we will see the same thing this time around. Maybe we won't. Um, I do think that there's the, the system level thinking that you alluded to before, I think is actually better this time around. Like, I mean, I've dedicated most of my career to the power sector, for example, I would say in this new climate tech wave, like the power sector has gotten much, much less attention. And that's probably a good thing. Not that we don't still need a ton of innovation in the power sector, but at least now there's a broader suite of solutions being proposed to try to address climate change in the sectors in which it from which it emanates, which is everywhere, <laughs> basically. So that might help in and of itself, right? We're not, not everything is going into nuclear fusion uh, because it's everything from like transportation to industrial to to the power sector to agriculture. There's kind of a, there's a, a tricky needle to thread here because when you, when the venture capital dollars come in, then people that are working in like the thornier sectors or that aren't maybe the best fit for venture capital that maybe are where venture capital went the first time around say venture capital's got no place here because it's not going to matter. It's just the moving atoms and the big infrastructure stuff that matters. And it's like, well, actually you're right that venture capital in some cases may not be the best fit for that kind of innovation, but there's other kind of innovation that it's also, or that it's actually a really nice fit for where it does matter. And then the counter argument is, yeah, but, but people are going to think that because they're focused on those areas that, that they've somehow got the sector covered. And it's like, well, they certainly don't have the sector covered and they don't come in with a cape and they're not going to run the table with whatever their little slices, but it is good that they're self-aware this time. And they're going to focus on the things that their asset class is best equipped for. And, and they're going to stay away from the things that it's not. So it's like, on the one hand, we want that, but on the other, you know, people are going to knock it because they're going to say it's not working on the most important stuff. And, and I think like they're kind of both right. Yeah. And I think there's this tendency to get back on my, like the power sector does matter soapbox. Like I I have also noticed a tendency amongst people who are kind of thinking at the systems level about this and globally about this to um, almost discard the power sector as like, well, we've got that one figured out, right? Like we made renewables cheap. We're going to figure out batteries. We can decarbonize power. And that's like so far from the truth in my mind, there's like so much that has to happen. We're, you know, we're going from 13% wind and solar in the U S to last year to 17% this year. And we're talking about getting to 80%, 90% by mid century. Some people are talking about hundred percent by mid century. Some of the plans of the democratic candidates are like hundred percent by in Bernie's case, 2030, Elizabeth Warren's case, 2035. Like there's, there's um, it's an enormous sector. And if we're going to be electrifying all these other sectors in the process in order to decarbonize those sectors, like it just means the the uh, the number of questions that will have to be answered is innumerable and some of those indeed probably don't lend themselves to the venture capital asset class but in my mind so many more of them do um and so i also think that like i don't want to index too far on the 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 solutions we should be spending our time and attention on are in these like less studied, slightly more esoteric parts of the climate change value chain. Yeah. And and plus, I think people get too hung up on additionality, for example, where additionality in the context of, well, if you weren't working on this, wouldn't the market cover it? And it's like, look, there's such a small percentage as a, as a 
as the as humans globally of our human capital and our financial capital that is allocated towards accelerating this transition that if you find a lane whether it's like the most additional one or not just pick up a shovel and start digging and it's going to help and if we just raise the percentage of people focused on this in some capacity it's probably the highest impact thing that we can do to help with the problem so as you've gone down this journey you've sort of explored all the various avenues and wrinkles and sectors are there any that you feel like are not getting enough attention like where you know from what you've seen thus far where would you if you had you know the power of god like where would you direct more resources and time and attention part of my i'm going to give you a non-answer and part of that non-answer is because i am you know i am thin and broad intentionally which means i'm not the you know, I'm not a domain expert in any sector, but part of it too is that I really don't know that there's like any, it's like we need to move this tankership that is our global economy. And there's so much that goes into that, that it, it's, uh, it's kind of like, don't, don't worry about it. Just, just find your lane. But I mean, things that are interesting to me, I, you know, there's a lot more that needs to happen. And, and to your point, just saying, oh, that's covered and that's a solved problem. I, I don't I think there's very few places, if any, that where that's actually true. Um, but on the other side, uh, mitigation, for example, gets a, a lot more attention than adaptation and resiliency. Um, so and that could be um, modeling to better understand future circumstances. That could be things like insurance um, and uh, and warranties and and risk exposure and how to account for the changing risk dynamics with things like wildfires and and fl- and flooding and rising water tables and and things like that. Carbon removal is one that, I mean, it's it's contentious because people say, like, either we're not going to need it or it's a distraction. But if you look at the IPCC report, it budgets that there's going to be a lot of it and we don't know where it's going to come from. So either we need to run different models or we need to get our act together and figure that stuff out. Yeah. And I think um, carbon removal is it's having its day in the sun now or it's starting to have its day in the sun now. Right. With like commitments from companies like Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft around it. There's, you know, Y Combinator has a whole program around it, which has resulted in a bunch of startups. That's So I, I'm finding that to be an interesting and exciting kind of like emergent new sector where historically, you know, carbon removal was like the domain of either scientists and labs or like, you know, there's sort of lots of old um, rainforest protection type nonprofit organizations that were kind of stayed and um, and accomplished things, but like it wasn't a, a major area of innovation. So I definitely think that's one that we're seeing more activity now. Yeah, but it's almost like the, the missing thing to me uh, is is less about this sector or that sector and more about giving people the foundational knowledge so that they they figure out for themselves what sector to pick and where their skills can have the biggest impact. So in order to get there, it's less about um, stack ranking sectors for gigatons and it's more about, um, you know, the, the actual work that's needed and someone's skill set and then where where they can apply it to to do good. Jason Jacobs is the host of My Climate Journey, a podcast you should absolutely go check out. Um, Tons of really interesting interviews with people approaching climate change from 
every possible different angle um, and just really deep conversations with how they're thinking about the problem. Um, great place to go through your own climate journey, whether you like Jason are new to it or like me have, have spent most of your career on it. Jason, thank you so much for being here. Shale, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. I'm Shale Khan. Stephen Lacey will be back next week. And this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Thank you so much for listening. Please uh, find us all on social media, including Jason. Uh, and if you like the show, give us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.